Father, we ask that you will again speak to us of the resurrection of Christ. Help us to know the resurrection in our lives. Open our ears to hear and our eyes to see, our minds to comprehend. In your grace and mercy, we ask this. Amen. Please be seated. It seems to me that um, the perspective of many people in the world, including a fair number of Christians, the perspective about heaven and death and resurrection is, is often based more on emotion than on biblical, historic Christian theology. It really shouldn't surprise us because the moment we start talking about death and heaven, you can't help but feel emotional about it. It it brings to us images and, and it brings to us thoughts about people we love who have died. And that naturally elicits emotions in us. We look for answers. We look for reasons to find comfort, to help us understand something that is so difficult for us in our finite human minds to understand and comprehend. It's out of this emotional response and out of this searching for for answers to our pained, sorrowful emotions that we come up with some Ideas of theology that are probably not the best. It's out of this emotional response that you will find books like Mitch Albom's The Five People You Meet in Heaven, which has some interesting ideas, most of them probably not real biblical, but, but people are attracted to that. It meets an emotional need that they feel. It, it's out of the emotions of, that we feel that we... We make statements at a time of death trying to explain and understand things like God needed another angel in heaven, so he took daddy. And, and as comforting as that might seem in the moment, in the, in the big picture, it's, it's not real good theology. And I'm not sure it's really all that helpful. It's out of the emotion that I suspect the roots of uh, universalism may well have arisen. None of us want to imagine ones we love not being in heaven, even though they choose through their life and their response to God. So we develop a kind of theology about heaven where everybody gets in no matter what. And on and on we go as we, we try to think about these issues that are so emotional for us. Emotion about death and heaven and, and things like resurrection are not a new phenomenon. It's been going on for a long, long time. In fact, I think it's an underlying issue in the church in Corinth. And, and I think it's, it's at the heart of a lot of what Paul writes in this 15th chapter of his first letter to them. 
It's a chapter that um, we're going to ponder over the next few weeks, and and actually, it's a chapter that is interwoven together, and it's it really ought to be taken as a whole, all at one time. But there's so much to to do that you you have to break it up. But but all of it is connected. It's a powerful word for us, and hopefully, it, it will help us clarify some things that we may wrestle with about death and heaven and resurrection. The problem that that triggers this entire chapter is summarized in verse 12, in which Paul asks, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? How can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? And you get the feeling that despite Paul's disbelief that they would actually deny the resurrection of the dead, the idea must be catching on. It must be, it must be gathering steam in Corinth because he writes an awful lot to combat it. It's possible that they may have been thinking that the resurrection was really just about what happens here. That, that the resurrection is about what God does for us as we live on this earth now. That God makes our lives valuable and worthwhile and, and brings joy and peace to us now. And there really isn't anything after that. There were people then who believed that. There are still people who believe that today. But more than likely, the Corinthians are not denying life after death. Because it seems as though virtually everyone in that time believed in life after death. What they seem to be disputing is the Jewish and Christian doctrine of a bodily resurrection. And and instead are endorsing one of the Greek forms of belief that limited the afterlife to a a disembodied immortality of the soul. They, They were seeing death as a liberation of the soul from its prison in the body. This idea seems to be populated in probably popularized most effectively by Plato. Plato's work was in many ways the foundation for what would come later in the the early centuries of the church, Gnosticism, which is actually at the heart of a lot of our modern cults and is a subtle voice in the heads of many people, including Christians. Platonism tells us that spirit is good and matter is evil. And if this is true, that spirit is good and matter is evil, then the great reward of life after death, of eternity, is purely the spirit. It's an escape from the body and everything about the body that we try to avoid. It's all about the spirit. We don't know exactly what causes the Corinthians to reject the resurrection of the body, to buy into Platonian thought, but it's probably probably not all that different from some of the struggles that we face when we think about our own bodies. We, we all struggle in some form or another with self-esteem about our bodies. Most of us would, would probably like to change at least one thing about our bodies, about our appearance. Something that we wish were different. And we work hard to, to make changes and to adjust our, our appearance and and then... We lament when our appearance doesn't change quite as much as we had hoped after all the work that we put into it. Our bodies slow down with injury, disease, and age. And our society is pretty good at reminding us that age is slowing us down continually. 
Christmas, Cindy and I uh, received a, a Wii, a Nintendo Wii. It's a video thing. And with that came a program called, we also got a Wii Fit. And it's an exercise program. Uh, it's very interactive. You stand on a little board and it measures all kinds of things. And you do a plethora of exercises, all kinds of things. It's actually a very, very good exercise program. I'm probably exercising more now than I have in a long time because we have that. So it's a good thing. And, and uh, you know, you do stretching and you do uh, all kinds of weight things. And, and it's, a, it's a really helpful program. And it is very interactive. It has a trainer on the TV screen that talks to you and, you know, does the things with you. But it also can be a little bit sarcastic with you sometimes. Picked up on that pretty quickly. I was doing uh, this balance thing on the, one of the first few days, and I didn't do so well with it. And his comment was, so are you able to walk and talk at the same time or not? Good thing I have something in my hand, you know, I might have wanted to throw it at it, and that would have been a whole other problem. But all the, you know, at the end of some of these, you say, is that the best you can do? Uh, you know, and things like that. And there's one exercise that you do where you stretch your legs out and you're in a kind of a warrior pose, you know, as you're, you're standing there. And, and um, when you get done with it on a number of occasions, he will say to you, uh, have you noticed that your stride and your stamina decrease with age? Now, I don't know whether to be offended by that or relieved by that. Because a part of me is relieved that, well, good, I guess that's the way it's supposed to be. The other part of me is like, wait a second, you know. We're reminded all the time about, our, about how age deteriorates our bodies. But beyond the issue of appearance and stamina and age, we also tend to equate our bodies with sin. That's natural because it's really the only context we have for, for understanding what it means to sin. After all, the scriptures talk about the flesh, and it's not a good thing. In Galatians chapter 5, as, as Paul is writing about the spirit and the flesh, he says in verse 19, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. All of those things have something to do with our bodies, our minds, our human flesh. And because of that, we get into our heads that we'll finally be spiritual if we can be free of the limitations of our minds and our bodies. And you add to that suffering and pain and persecution and the atrocities of life that that we we commit against one another, it's no wonder we're tempted to think that freedom is being free of these bodies. That we think of heaven as being free from these bodies. But that isn't the understanding of our faith in Christ. Which is why Paul, at the beginning of this chapter, sort of takes them back and says... Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you've taken your stand. And in verse 3, he calls the preaching of the resurrection something that should be considered first importance. It's essential. The centrality of the resurrection is not something new. It's the foundation of all that they have believed when they came to Christ in the first place. Paul reminds them that he taught them what the disciples taught him. Not telling them something he just developed himself. But what the church has taught 
And they encountered the empty tomb on that first Easter morning. And the resurrection of Christ is so important that Paul goes back and he describes what Christ has done. He says in those following verses that Christ died for our sins and he was buried and he was raised according to the scriptures. And he reminds them of all the resurrection appearances, the Peter and the 12 and more than 500 believers all at one time, James and to, to all the apostles and finally even to Paul himself. And he says, none of that's new to you. You, you already know all of this. I've already preached this to you. You've already told me you believe it. You've said this is the foundation of why we're followers of Christ. And that's why Paul is scratching his head, wondering how they could so easily forget what is so central. So he reminds them. I would guess it wouldn't hurt for us to be reminded at times too. I suspect that many of us, as including myself, might not have been raised to, uh, to follow and to think about the church calendar. But the church fathers created the church calendar in order to help us remember. The church calendar beginning in Advent and then going to Christmas and, and Epiphany and Lent and Easter and Pentecost takes us through the life of Christ on a yearly basis. It's intended to remind us of what God has done in Christ. Today is a perfect example. Most of us probably were raised that we celebrate Easter and the next Sunday we move on to something else. The church calendar reminds us that Easter is more than than one day of the year. It's 50 days of the year. Easter season begins Easter Sunday and it continues until Pentecost 50 days later. Easter's not just one day we celebrate. It's a season of 50 days that we celebrate at the very least. But we so easily forget. And we need to be reminded that more than anything else, we are followers of Christ because we are resurrection people. It's the resurrection of Christ that defines who we are as followers of Christ. Someone said to me recently, Christmas tends to get all the hype. And that's probably true. And Christmas is extremely important. But the foundation of our hope is in the resurrection. The resurrection isn't real. We're just going through the motions. We're just wasting our time. We wonder what in the world we're doing here. And the denial of, of the resurrection of the body is not just an issue of theology. It's the very heart of all that it means to be Christian. Because if we are not raised bodily, then as Paul says, Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, this is all some kind of cosmic joke. Paul says in verses 14 to 19, look, folks, you're not thinking clearly here. If there's no such thing as resurrection of the dead, how in the world can you believe that Christ himself was raised from the dead? And if Christ has not been raised, everything we've ever preached to you is useless, empty, and vain. It's a lie. If we deny the resurrection of Christ, we're liars. If the resurrection of Christ is not true, everything we are and believe and preach is a lie. That our sins are forgiven. 
We have the promise of eternal life, that God is sovereign, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that, that the enemy doesn't have the last word. That the church really has any reason for existence, that, that we're no more important, necessary, have any more purpose and meaning in the world than the lodge or the civic center or the country club. All we've got is this life. And everything we have given up for Christ is worthless. And we are fools. And people ought to look at us and pity us more than anybody in the world. I know it's tempting for us to think, well, look, this is just one of those mysteries we're never going to figure out, so let's just not worry about it. What difference does it make anyway? We'll find out soon enough what's real. It doesn't really matter now anyway. But it does matter. Paul says it's of utmost importance. He spends so much ink and energy addressing it. That we believe in the bodily resurrection of Christians is significant because if our resurrection isn't bodily, then neither is Christ's. And if Christ is not raised, none of it matters. If the resurrection is just spirit, then the tomb isn't really empty. And if the tomb is empty and it's all just spirit, then the claims of all the people who say they saw Jesus and all the the claims of the Gospels about all the appearances of Jesus are a lie and a sham. And so is our faith and our hope. It's essential. I find it interesting that most of the arguments against Christianity come back to the resurrection. Most of the people who want to argue about the validity of Christianity will most of the time take you to the resurrection. And there are all kinds of theories about that. that you know, there's a swoon theory that Jesus didn't really die. He was beaten severely and crucified and then put into a tomb wrapped up in grave clothes, but then woke up and had enough strength to roll that stone away. That makes a lot of sense. Now, there are people who say that Jesus wasn't a real human being. He was just a spirit. He was just, and he just looked like a human being. He was a ghost. But that means he didn't really die. You don't have death. You don't have resurrection. And if Christ is not raised, we will not be raised. And this is why Paul turns this thing around in verse 20, and he makes this bold statement, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. In fact, he is the first fruit of all those who have fallen asleep. That word first fruit takes us back to the Old Testament. It's, it's talking about the harvest. And it's, it's the first crop of the harvest that was, was supposed to be the tithe to the temple, the tabernacle. The first fruits are, are interesting because they're, they're always the best of the crop. When we lived in Wisconsin, I was around dairy farmers. I didn't know anything about farming I learned a lot from them, and one of the things I learned is that they would mow their alfalfa usually about four times over the course of the summer, but no one ever doubted or debated that the first crop was always the best. You got the more out of the first crop, and it dwindled as you got down to the fourth one. That's the first fruits. But cutting in, bringing in the first fruits isn't all the crop. It's symbolic of all the rest of the crop that's still to come. And in the same way, Jesus, as the, as the first of the resurrection, is like that first fruit 
He is the epitome of resurrection. There have been other people who were raised from the dead. Stories in the Old Testament, Jesus himself raised some people from the dead. But the difference is all of them died again, except for Jesus. And Because he is raised, all of us who come after him, who are in him, will be raised as well. I realize that uh, it's one of the short phrases at the end, and it's easily overlooked, like a child learning their ABCs and going through that part of the alphabet where they say L-M-N-O-P, and it all sort of sounds like one letter. I wonder about when we say the Apostles' Creed, and we're in those, those last six phrases, when we say, I believe in in the resurrection of the body, if we just sort of gloss over that with all the other phrases. We shouldn't. It's imperative. I wonder how much the truth of that lives in us and gets into us. We believe that that we are going to be raised bodily and we won't have the same kind of bodies we have now. I'm sure there'll be similarities and differences just as with Jesus. Jesus had his resurrection body was similar enough that he could eat and drink and talk and be touched, but it was different enough that he could walk through doors. And he wasn't always recognized immediately. And our bodies will be similar and different. We won't have the, all of the, the pains and the sufferings that we have now. Our bodies will be transformed, made new through the risen Christ. You know, we live in a world, as did the Corinthians, in which everything points us away from this truth of our faith. We live in a world that continually tells us that this is it. The stuff of this world is all that matters. And getting yourself connected to the power of this world is what's really important. That will give you purpose and meaning. And what happens after that? Whatever. This is all that matters. Because that message is in our ears continually, we need to have our memories jogged too. We who know the truth need to be reminded of the truth. We who've based our lives and our work and our families and our future on this truth, need to be reminded because we so quickly forget. We forget that in Christ, we have the promise of new, restored, transformed bodies in which we will live in victory and freedom, in power and holiness through the risen Christ. We forget that in Christ, we have purpose for living now that will be eternal. We forget that in Christ, we have a message for the world that it needs to hear because no one else is going to tell them. We have a message of hope. We have a message of resurrection, even in the face of death. It all comes back to resurrection. First Christ, and then us. Are you living in the truth? the resurrection. Please pray with me.
Heavenly Father, we gather again today to celebrate the resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's such a magnificent, world-changing event that to think of the resurrection only one day a year is, is inadequate. We're here today because Christ lives, and we have the hope of eternity with you because Christ lives. So our celebration of the risen Christ continues. Father, open our eyes to the significance of the resurrection. Help us to see life and life's events with transformed eyes and ears and mouths and minds so that even in our pain, we experience your healing. Even in our sorrow, your comfort. In our despair, your hope. In our joy, your presence. And in the mundane, routine, everyday moments of life, help us know the power, faithfulness, fidelity, and courage, and passion, and holiness. Because Christ, who was dead and buried, is alive forevermore. Father, help us to understand the uncertainties of life from the perspective of the empty tomb. Give us confidence that despite the injustices of this life and the power of this world that seems to be in total control, that in the resurrected Christ, things are not what they seem. For you, you alone are the king and ruler of all. Father, we pray that Matthew and Crystal will minister in the confidence and courage of the risen Christ. May they see his power perfected in their lives and in their witness to the people of the Czech Republic, many of whom do not know you. Father, may the influence of your resurrection people in this world bring about change and transformation as Christ lives in us. Father, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ for all that it means in the future, for all that it means in the past, for all that it means even this day. And it's in the name of our risen Savior that we pray with the joy and the confidence of resurrection people remembering the prayer of faith and power that he taught us and which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, But deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.